there's, there's a lot of questions that, um, that I, I hear over and over, but every time there's two or three or four, I'm just like, oh, never thought about that. Here we go. Because it, it, it's a contested area, you know that, and that's what we're going to think about now. We're, we're going to think about the contestedness of this area, and specifically the contestedness of this area inside of our local churches, right? or maybe between you and other Christian friends. How do we, how do we love brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree politically? That's, that's the question we're going to try to answer. And I don't know about your family or your church, but I'm already feeling it within my my family. Something I've asked myself is, okay, why, why is it that this domain of politics elicits so much passion and anger even? Why? Why does this get us heated? And just reflecting on it, I, I came up with three reasons. And, and um, first is, is the idea that, that politics deals with matters of justice. Governments exist, I said in the last talk, to pursue justice, and uh, justice is the domain of potential anger. After all, how do you respond to injustice? You hear of, a, say, a child being abused. What's, what's the right emotion when you hear of a child being abused? What's well, anger? The right emotion, so that kind of injustice should be anger. What is anger? Anger is the emotion of I oppose that. I want to stop that. I even want to destroy that. that. That's what anger is for, right? So in the face of injustice, you feel potentially a, a right anger, okay? That, that's one reason this domain elicits so much heat. A, a second reason is that our anger is often unjust, it's often not aimed rightly, right? The, the, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, the Bible tells us. So you, when you get angry because you perceive an injustice and you want to say, I oppose that, I destroy that, what are you doing? You're doing but every other nation, every other political party in the history of the world has done. You're just joining in the conversation like every other nation, every other party, right? You are potentially being co-opted by the anger of this team or the anger of that team. My tribe, their tribe. My party, their party. And the nations go to war. So in other words, in these first two points, I'm, I'm giving you, yeah, this is why you're angry and it makes sense. And then I'm taking it away. Mm, because our anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God so often. Those are two reasons I think this is a heated topic. Here, here's a third reason. Because our political judgments require wisdom. Our political judgments require wisdom. Now, this is true for everybody, but thinking about it as Christians, the Bible does not speak to many of the political issues of the day, and it almost never speaks to various questions of strategy or tactics or things like that. Instead, resolving 
strategy, tactics, policy requires wisdom and things that the Bible doesn't tell us directly what to do. In other words, there's always some space between say, okay, here's my biblical and theological principles, but over here is my political judgment about how to pursue those principles, you know, biblical or theological. So there's space in between. And Christians are going are to disagree on this space. Okay, so here, here's, here's an illustration from Scripture. If, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, you read the story about Solomon asking God's like, you know, I'm going to give you anything you want. He says, give me wisdom. And then immediately after, the story turns to, uh, or, or the, the, the chapter turns to the story of the two prostitutes coming before Solomon, both saying, that's my baby, because one of the baby of one of the prostitutes died in the night. And they say, this is my baby. No, it's my baby. Well, picture your Solomon at that moment. Can, can you open your Bible and be like, okay, it's her baby? Well, no. The Bible doesn't script that. Now, he has certain biblical objectives in mind, right? The parents and what's righteousness and not stealing. So he has biblical principles in mind over here, but now he's got, he's got to apply it in this domain, and the, the Bible just doesn't say. But of course, God had given wisdom to Solomon, and so he says, I know, bring me a sword. He says, okay, let's cut the baby in half, half to her, half to her. In that moment, you know how it turns out. The real mother says, she can have it, that's fine. And everybody said, ah, that's the real mother. And then how does the narrator summarize the story uh, for us? 1 Kings 3.28 And all Israel heard the judgment of the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Friends, if you go to college and you take political science classes and you're studying political philosophy, you you don't need to. You don't need Plato. You don't need Aristotle. You just need this verse, okay? We need the wisdom of God to do justice. There's the political philosophy of the Bible in a nutshell, in a single verse. We need wisdom of God to do justice. So I I get the wisdom of God in part from these biblical and theological principles, and then I need to apply them in this political domain, but this political domain requires not just that wisdom, but it also requires the wisdom of, of knowing creation and knowing fallenness and knowing how people work, and i got to figure this out. Oh, there's no Bible verse. Oh, God, give me wisdom. And Christians are going to disagree. So injustice makes me angry. It makes you angry. Sometimes my anger, oftentimes my anger is misdirected. And now I'm disagreeing with brothers and sisters in Christ because this is the domain of wisdom. And you're saying, that's unjust. And I'm saying, no, it's not. I'm saying, that's unjust. And then we fight, right? So why do we fight? That's those three reasons why we fight. Uh, you, you could pick any contested political issue of our day. Think, think about the controversy surrounding Central and South American asylum seekers and other migrants crossing the United States border. So one group of Christians believes the present laws are just fine. If anything, we need to tighten the restriction in order to protect our nation and our children, right? That's what one group of 
Christians are going to be saying, is going to be saying. Another group of Christians, however, is going to argue that humanitarian considerations mean, means allowing as many migrants as possible, as the present law allows, and, and probably even changing the laws to allow for more. And let's assume for a moment that both sides are giving biblical reasons, like it's, it's good to want to protect safety and order and, 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 and protect our children and, and minimize crime. Those, those are good biblical objectives, but it's also a good biblical objective to, 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 to show respect to people made in God's image who are fleeing you know, terrible situations and to whom much is given, much is required. That's, that's a biblical principle too, right? Well, okay, so what policy is best for both of these biblical principles? principles. Ah, that takes wisdom, a whole lot of wisdom. We're going to disagree. Can we disagree well? Again, there's space between our biblical and theological judgments and our policy applications, and that's part of what makes all of this very, very hard. It's also very hard. Last thing I would just say on this is that the ground is constantly shifting under our feet. So imagine a Christian comes to you in, you say, say you're living in Germany in the 1920s and a, a fellow Christian comes to you and says, you know, I really like this National Socialist Party. You know, they, they really seem to be about getting the German economy back on the tracks and restoring German pride. And, and that's in the 1920s. And you think to yourself, oh, those, those Nazis, you know, aren't they beating people up on the streets? I'm not really sure, but Okay. Now, suppose that same friend comes to you in the 1930s and says, yeah, I'm all about the Nazi party. Well, at that point, you'd be like, well, hold on. No, no, no. They're saying some pretty bad stuff. Now, suppose that friend comes to you in the 1940s and says, yeah, I like the Nazis. You'd say, you can't be a member of this church, right? In other words, the landscape is shifting. And at each point, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, each point, we... As elders, as churches, are trying to exercise discernment. What time is it now? Right? There's a time and a season for everything. What, what time is it now? How do I respond to the Democratic Party now versus four years ago? Has it changed? The Republican nominee now versus four years ago, has it changed? What, what, what criteria should I be using? Oh, Lord, give me wisdom. This is tough. Brothers and sisters are going to disagree with me. They're going, to be, they're going to get heated about it. Okay, how can we love our church? That's all set up. That's all intro set up. How can we love brothers and sisters with whom we disagree politically? After that wisdom thinking process, and here's what time it is, it's time to say this. Your sister, your brother in Christ is like, no, 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 no. Okay, what now? Six things. Number one, adjust your expectations. This is how you love. Number one, adjust your expectations. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not come in and resolve all of our wisdom-based political judgments. Rather, the gospel comes and helps us love and forbear with one another amidst different judgments. It brings unity amidst diversity. It doesn't bring uniformity. Think of Matthew, the tax collector, collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. Think of 
Simon the Zealot, full on, we need to throw a revolution against Rome. Now they're both following Jesus. I don't know this, just a little speculation here. I'm assuming Matthew didn't completely give up his political posture and perspective. And I don't assume Simon the Zealot completely gave up his. It was probably, I assume both of them were probably tempered some. They recognized we want to follow this guy. I, I, I can almost kind of picture them, they're following behind Jesus and they're kind of arguing in the background, right, about how bad Roman occupation is. But Jesus is like, I, I've come with a different agenda. This, this isn't about Rome, for Rome, against Rome. That's not why I'm here. Now they're following him. And some of that tension is probably still there because the gospel doesn't immediately resolve the question of pro-Rome, anti-Rome. That's not, that's not what it's doing, right? And so it is with so many of our others. So adjust your expectations. In fact, let me, let me put it this way. Here, here's the irony. If this is a healthy, gospel-centered church, you will have political tension. If this is basically a pretend gospel church, but is actually a rallying point for elephants or donkeys, Republicans or Democrats, you're not going to have tension. There's going to be political uniformity. But if, but if he's building and the elders are building and you are building this church on the gospel and it's healthy in that way, you can expect some tension. See, here's the thing. It's really easy, it's comparatively easy, to build a church on a party platform. It's pretty easy to build a church where we all think the same things politically. I know what trigger words I could use for conservative boomers or progressive millennials. I know what I could say that would make the progressive millennials feel like, Okay, this is my space. I'm, I'm comfortable here. I talk about checking your privilege. And the younger folk would be like, oh, okay, he sounds reasonable, right? And with some of the older conservatives, I could be talking about law and order. Some of the older folk, the conservatives, would be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, this, this man is sensible. Uh-huh, right? It'd, it'd, be, it'd be fairly easy to build one of those two churches. The harder thing, friends, the harder thing is building on the Bible, Building on the gospel and not my, I have political opinions, right? I, I have a lean. It'd be easy to talk about my lean, but I, I don't want to build the Bible on my lean. I want to build the, I'm sorry, I don't want to build a church on my lean or his lean. I want to build a church on, on the Bible, okay? And that's the harder thing to do. And so we should expect some tension because not all of these wisdom-based judgments are going to be resolved for Rome, against Rome, not all of that's going to be resolved by the things that we read in Scripture. Now, whether we're for Rome or against Rome, and how, rather, we live, Roman occupation, not Roman occupation. Well, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you meek? Right? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The Bible's going to tell us how to live in both of those situations, and that, that's what we're going to build our church on. Do you see? Okay, so number one, adjust your expectations. Number two, recognize what a church is. This is building on the last point. 
Jesus did not design our churches to be national or ethnic or class gatherings or the gathering of a political party. Rather, he designed them to be gatherings of his followers from every tribe and tongue and nation, the, the, the full, and, and as well as slave and free, right? Different political classes, as, as it were, and the for Rome and the against Rome folk. Uh, your church and mine, friends, are former enemies I'm on the throne. No, I'm on the throne. Former enemies learning to love one another and live together. Jesus is on the throne, right? That means you show up to church on Sunday morning expecting to be challenged to love these people who are sometimes hard to love. So, so that guy who shows up and he kind of goes on and on about his political opinions or that couple who comes from that slightly different political perspective than you. Okay, so now I'm, I'm sitting in small group and there he goes again talking about his thing. Beat my sword into a plowshare right now. Love my former enemy right now. Okay, Jesus, that's what you're calling me to. Right? Because that's what a church is. It's, it's not a party gathering. It's not a nation gathering. It's not an ethnic gathering. It's a gospel gathering. I got work to do. These people with different opinions. Number three. So number one, trust your expectations. Number two, recognize what a church is. Number three, recognize what then unites a church and what belongs to the domain of Christian freedom. Recognize what unites a church and what belongs to the domain of Christian freedom. Like two buckets. I got whole church issues and I got Christian freedom slash, put it this way, disputable matters issues. Two buckets. Okay? We unite as a church on these gospel whole church issues and these Christian freedom disputable matters are not the things that we unite on, okay? So that, that's what we're trying to carve out. Whole church issues are the issues that make a church a church, like the gospel, like everything in your statement of faith, like an affirmation of repentance in this person's life. You know, he, he formerly was pursuing the world, but he came and asked to be baptized and we baptized him and brought him, gave him the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We brought him into the church. We're affirming his faith and repentance. A church is united around participation in the ordinances. Those are your whole church issues. What, meanwhile, Christian freedom issues or disputable matter issues are those that may be important and morally significant, but we're not quite ready to say, to be a member of the church, you have to believe this. These are not Christians' must issues. So I'm not saying that this is the realm of moral relativity. I'm not saying this is Wheaties versus Cheerios. Ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just saying that these are the issues that we're, we're not requiring to be a faithful member of this church. We're leaving some space for Christians to disagree on this second bucket of issues. Christian freedom slash disputable matters. Now, Christians are going to disagree what belongs in this bucket, and what belongs in that bucket. That's fine. I just want you to see that there's two buckets and we're, we're trying to find the line in between these two kinds of issues. To borrow language from Jesus who calls churches to bind on heaven what's bound, 
Bind on earth what's bound in heaven and loose on earth what's loosed in heaven. Okay, these issues we're going to bind and these issues we're going to loose. We're not going to bind your conscience on, on, on these things, but we will on those things. And hopefully also, also, we agree a line exists. We also agree that these things are things that are either explicit in Scripture or clear by good and necessary consequence, to borrow from the Westminster Confession. So explicit in Scripture or, or, or very clear by good and necessary consequence. That's a clear implication, right? Whereas, whereas these things are, are not necessarily clear from Scripture. We want to bind Christian consciences and lives where Scripture does and loose things that it doesn't bind, right? Pharisees bind where Scripture doesn't. Cults bind what Scripture doesn't. We don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to be a cult. So we're trying to leave in the whole church bucket, bucket only those things that well, the Bible says. or it, It's clear, clear implication from the Bible. Okay, let me give you give me a couple examples. My church, I assume yours, binds a whole church issue is the divinity and humanity of Christ. The nature of the millennium is not. Now, I think the Bible teaches a certain perspective on the millennium. I could tell you what I think. I'm not going to right now. But I, I think you can be a Christian and disagree with me on the nature of the millennium. So that's not in our statement of faith. That's an easy example. Here, here's another, I think, easy example. I think calling Christians to repent of sexual immorality, I think that's a whole church issue. Right? So if you are not repenting of your sexual immorality, if you are full-on pursuing it, you're not even fighting it, yeah, that, that's a condition for membership. We will remove you. You run away with another woman who's not your wife, we will remove you from membership. Right? That is a whole church issue. Whereas homeschool, Christian school, public school, I, uh, I have my opinion. I know what I do with my girls. That's not a whole church issue. I'm going to leave that in the Christian freedom or disputable matter domain. Okay. Now, none of this is to say, again, that people don't have biblical convictions over here. You might have a biblical conviction, but again, you're, going to, you're, agreeing, that, well, you're agreeing two things about these issues versus these issues. These issues, whole church issues, are issues where the pastor is going to get up, he's going to open his Bible, and he's going to preach it. He's going to bind consciences. So you must believe, as a, as a Christian, you need to believe this and you need to live this way. You need to believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man. That you must repent of sexual immorality. And, and so it goes on through the Bible. He's going to bind the consciences of the whole congregation. Number one, so preaching. Number two, you're going to, you're going to treat these, these issues, whole church issues, as conditions for membership. Okay? So to be a member of this church here, you have to affirm these things and you have to repent of those things. Whereas these things are not things he's necessarily going to bind your consciences on and bind, bind the whole church and say, Christian, this is the Christian standard. We must live this way. And we're not going to treat these as conditions of membership. Okay, that's going to be the difference between these two kinds of bucket. So I will happily welcome, as I said before, anybody to the Lord's table who has a different view of the millennium who makes different decisions about how to educate their 
children. Okay, so how does, Jonathan, okay, you explained all that. I got that two kinds of issues. How, how, does this, how does this help me love brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with me politically? Okay, whenever you're tempted to think about political topic X as super important and worth you getting a little angry about, I can't believe they disagree with me on this. Stop, pause, count to 10, right? Collect yourself and think to yourself, is my opinion on this political matter so clear from the Bible, he needs to get up here and preach that? And is it so clear from the Bible that we need to ask people joining the church, do you believe this? That we are now the you know, First Baptist and blank church where everybody here affirms this, this political standard of mine? Is that, is that where, are we ready to divide the body of Christ over this, right? When you realize that might help you just kind of step back, calm down, lower the volume, lower the temperature, and realize, okay, actually, this, 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 this is a Christian freedom issue. This is a disputable matter. So I can, I can talk to you about it, and I can try to persuade you. So actually, I think my, my position on immigration, you know, we have those two, those two things before. Let, let me try to persuade you why I think my position on immigration is actually the right one. But at the end of the day, you know what? You and me, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and you can disagree with me, and I rejoice to be in the same body as you. I, you know what I can do? I can change the subject. I can talk about something else. And you and I, we're just fine. Our friendship is whole and intact Right? Because this, this is a disputable matter. This is a Christian freedom thing. And we're not, we're not going to divide the body of Christ over this. This takes some maturity, right? What do immature people do? Immature people make everything of first importance. How can you believe that on immigration? What's, do you, why are you such a hater? Right? No. Mature people recognize they know how to make distinctions. Godly people know how to make... Okay, that, that is a big deal. We need to talk about that. That, that is potentially the dividing the body of Christ, that issue. That's not. I, I can operate in two speeds here. right? So I think understanding and recognizing these things is crucial for maintaining unity amidst diversity. So if you want to make a case on reparations for or against, make your case. That's good. Just make sure you come to the Lord's table with people who disagree with you on that one. You want to use a language of systemic racism or you think it's awful, okay? Have good conversations. Let's, let's talk about it. That's a good thing. Mature, godly people need to be able to talk through. But please welcome to the Lord's table people who disagree with you over that kind of language. Don't, don't be a Pharisee and insist everybody thinks just like you to be a mature, faithful Christian in a lot of these kind of disputable matters. Immigration policy, the wearing of masks. I got one somewhere here. Christians are dividing over these. Friends, it shouldn't be that way. Biting and devouring one another. I'm fine for you to have your conviction on masks or immigration policy or any number of things that I respect and want to affirm your ability and I want to hear from you and why you think that. I want to learn from you. I do. But please don't make it a condition of Lord's table unless you are going to say we are the church of non-mask wearers. 
we're the church of mask wearers. Well, whatever, right? I don't, I don't think we would divide, should divide the body of Christ over such things. Number four. Determine whether an issue requires a straight line judgment or a jagged line judgment. This is me drilling down on the last point. Okay, Jonathan, how do we know what's a whole church issue versus what's a Christian freedom slash disputable matter issue? How do we know? The short answer is these whole church issues require a straight line judgment from Scripture, whereas these depend on jagged line judgment. So if I, if I had a whiteboard, I'd have a straight line pointing to whole church issues, and I'd have a jagged line judgment pointing to Christian freedom slash disputable matter issues. By saying an issue depends on a straight line judgment, what I mean is the space between my biblical theological principles and my policy application is pretty small. So it's a short space, and it's a direct line. Bible says, you shall not murder. The Bible says, he's known us since our mother's womb. The line from those biblical principles to abortion is pretty short and pretty straight, right? I would count that as a whole church issue. If you are an abortion doctor, my church, well, you wouldn't be a member of my church. If you are like, yay, abortion, and funding abortion, promoting abortion, you cannot be a pro-abortion member of my church. There's just a straight line there. Christians don't support the slaughters of of babies. That's a straight line issue. It doesn't take a lot of biblical and theological work to get from from these biblical texts to that policy application. Okay, that's that's an example of a straight line issue. Christians can't be racists, right? That's a straight line issue. Now what's harder is when we start talking about strategies or tactics, Okay, well, what exactly is a racist policy? What, what is that police brutality situation? Well, that, that's going to require a number of judgments, jagged line judgments. Should Christians participate in pro-life marches? What? Christians might disagree on whether or not we should participate in pro-life marches. That, that's a jagged line matter. Or, or to, use, to use another example, what, what about health care? So suppose you, you, a brother or sister in Christ wants to argue for, for universal health care. It's a human right. And so he, he goes to the Bible and he look, look, says, look, we're all made in God's image and these people are being denied health care and, and you know, they're showing up and they're being turned away and that's not respecting the God image-ness in them. Surely, universal health care is the Christian position. In fact, that might maybe it sounds a little strange to you. If you go to Europe, that is a more common view among Christians, right? But how do you get to that position? Well, you have to answer a number of questions that Christians might disagree on. Okay, well, universal health care. Okay, well, what services would be covered? What, at what cost to the taxpayers? Well, what would the economic trade-offs be, and, and, and are those just? Well, what if the standards of care dramatically drop such that more people can't receive life-saving treatment or, 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 or things that provide for quality of life. Well, Christians might, those, those are tough questions. And Christians might reasonably disagree on those questions. So, so over here in healthcare, you've got, you got like a zigzag, zigzag before you get to a policy application from, from the Bible to what the policy should be. So I'm leaving healthcare, at least universal, I'm leaving it over here in disputable matter. 
Christian freedom bucket, you see? Which means my fellowship with you isn't going to finally depend on your opinion on that issue. And you and I can have good conversations, but we, we, should, we should love one another at the end of those conversations. So back to my, you know, WhatsApp conversation between my dad and my brother, I think they're handling it maturely, right? Because the issues that they are debating, I'm not going to get into what they are, but what they're debating, I would say, are jagged line conversations, and they're, they're, they're dealing with it well. Okay, principle five, how do we love one another with different politics? Number five, welcome brothers and sisters who have different positions on jagged line judgments and don't look down on them. Welcome brothers and sisters who have different positions on jagged line judgments and don't look down on that. Friends, I'm, I'm getting that from Romans 14, verse 1. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. I said welcome one another with different, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. There's a temptation to think people who are one or two steps more strict, uh, you're a legalist. One or two or one or two steps more kind of casual and easygoing. Oh, you're an antinomian. Calm down. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another, the servant of God? Who are you going to pass judgment on God's servant? Really? Do you have that kind of wisdom? Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I know my opinion on eating Meat sacrificed to idols. I, I know my opinion, says Paul. I, I know what I think on this political issue. And I think I'm right. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Is Paul saying morality is relative? No, he's just saying, look, if, if you think something is sin and you do it anyway, it might not be sin, but if you think it's sin and you do it, even though it's not actually sin because you think it's sin and you're doing it against God, it's sin. That's what he's saying. But it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, you do not destroy those for whom Christ has died. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You have an obligation, brothers and sisters in Christ, to bear with even the failings of the weak and not to please yourself. So I was having a conversation with an individual, and this individual uh, said, I, I can't imagine voting in this direction. Voting in that direction makes me want to throw up. And my response to her was, well, you shouldn't. If that, if that 
binds your conscience. If you think it's wrong to vote in that direction, then you shouldn't. Now, I'm not telling you to vote the other way. I'm just saying, if you think that's sin, then you should not do that. Vote third party. Vote. Don't vote before you vote for what you think is sin. Don't do that. Now, I personally don't think voting in that way would have been sin. But she was convinced it is. Okay. Don't defile your conscience by doing that then. You see? Um... Okay, so is it okay to talk about jagged line issues with our fellow Christians? Yes, but we, we can only do it in the right spirit and the right proportion. So let's be strict with ourselves. Let's be generous with others. Let's not become so preoccupied with jagged line issues that we're divisive about them. After all, what, what, what's our hope in? Christian, what is your hope in? Your hope is in the whole church issues. Yes, you should care about justice. Yes, you should care about the election. But your hope is not in the next election. Your hope is in the things that unite your church. This is where we're going to get true justice and righteousness for eternity. Any justice we get in the next election at best will be partial and full of holes. And it won't last. Politics is Sisyphean. You guys remember Sisyphus? Greek mythology? He's the one who rolls the rock up the hill and then down it rolls. And he's cursed for all eternity to roll it up again and down it rolls. Any good the next election will do is at best Sisyphean. Get it up and it's going to come down. Have you read Ecclesiastes? That's how it's going to Your hope is not in these disputable matters. Your hope is in the whole church. Hey, church, let's gather on these things because we know this justice, this righteousness will last. Okay. So we're turning down again the volume on this over here. That, that, that's, that's my last point, six. Rem- remember what's most important. Remember what's most important. Ancient Rome came and went. For Rome, against Rome, Matthew, Simon, eh, it's going. Soviet Union. I'm, 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 I'm old enough to remember the kind of fear many people felt about the Soviet Union. I, I, I remember 84, um, Walter Mondale versus Reagan election. I, my, my earliest election memory is 80. I was born in 73. I remember 80 foggily. I remember 84 more clearly. I remember Reagan commercials. There's a bear in the woods, you know, talking about Soviet Union and how Mondale wasn't taking Soviet Union clearly enough. Um, was it Mondale 84? Was he 80? 84. Yeah, 84, okay. Who was 80? Carter, Carter right, of course. Right, he ran again. Yeah, so yeah, I remember, I remember those. I, I remember uh, the fear we had of the Soviet Union. Where's the Soviet Union today, anyone? Big threat, right? Came and went. Germany, Nazi Germany, came out. Here, here, here's something. I love the United States. It's going to come and go. I, lo- I love it. I love Americana. I love American history. I love American classical music. You ever listen to Aaron Copeland? I listen to Aaron Copeland, and it just evokes memories, and I, and I, I love documentaries about um, American history. I just... 
It, it's, it's, like, it's like my family. Right? I love it. It's going to go. I, I got to loosen my grip on that just a little bit. Right? Now, friends, as, as, the, as the culture presses against the church, we have to remember that it's finally about these whole church issues that we stand on. And Jesus is going to win. His kingdom does not hang in the balance. We're going to be okay no matter what happens on November 3rd. Friends, you're going to be, the cities could burn. We'll be okay if we're with Jesus. We really will. We, we know that. And so we're going to hold with a firm grip to these things. These things, we're, we're going to argue for them and make our case. That's fine. We'll hold them with a slightly looser Griff, because we're, we're anticipating the justice which is going to last, Christ's perfect reign. Now, the culture is going to push on us, and we're, one, one of the biggest threats we're going to feel is the threat of unfaithfulness. That's another thing. I, I probably could have added this to the beginning. We, we, we fight over You're going you're gonna to fall into fa- unfaithfulness if you go that direction. There's another threat I, w- I want to remind us of, and that's the threat of balkanization. Fancy word. What am I getting at? The Balkan, do you know the Balkans? Once, what was once known as Yugoslavia, breaking into multiple pieces as they all went to war against one another. Do, do you want the church to balkanize? Do you want the church to break into multiple pieces? I don't, right? And that is a threat. Unfaithfulness is one threat. Balkanization, breaking into lots of pieces, is another threat. And we need to be mindful of that. So when one Christian says, we must this, and another Christian says, we must that, and a fourth, third, fourth, and fifth says, no, 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 parks on both your houses, we must this, that, and the other. That's not going to go well for us. It's not going to go well for our witness. That feels like being co-opted to me. So what do we do? Well, we, we humbly listen to people who don't share our perspective, I can understand why the world thinks they're all right and the other side is all wrong, but I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I understand that I'm sinful and capable of self-deception. As a Christian, I understand that none of us are all right all the time, which means I want to I enter that conversation and hear what the others... Maybe God has actually had some grace on my political opponent. Maybe there's something in what they're saying I need to hear. Again, lest I be co-opted by one side or the other, right? So, so we want to listen to those, especially those people who come from a different background, right? We want to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Is it possible that... Now, when I got married, I was certain I was right about most things. Uh, always confident, sometimes right. Well, what does living with my wife in an understanding way mean? It means I need to really listen to her and say, oh, you know, actually, she, she's got a case here. She's got a point there. And I grow in wisdom. I don't shrink that way. I get bigger that way. I, I grow in wisdom. Could that same principle apply with the brother, sister in Christ who comes from a different perspective than you? Might they have something? Right? Let's pray for those we disagree with. Uh, when, when we pray for people we disagree with, our, our affection for them grows, I think. So pray for people you disagree with. Um, and finally, I would say meditate on eternity and final judgment often. As we have our minds and hearts fixed on eternity, 
that, that shouldn't cultivate indifference. Ah, this world's going to burn. No, no. What that does is, is it frees us up to then pour ourselves out in love for others. I don't got to hold on and to preserve this world so I, I, can, I can care for and love you, my neighbor, even my neighbor I disagree with because I'm finally worried about that day. And the day, November 3rd, isn't quite as important as that day. I want my focus on that. Our hope is not in the party or platform or kingdom now. Our hope is in the day the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. Let me pray. We'll take a little break and then come back with Q&A. All right. Father God, we confess that we do not always do a good job of humbling ourselves before you and humbling ourselves before others. Help us to be a people who listen. Help us to be a people who love justice, but know that justice and righteousness finally comes from you. Help us not to be co-opted by the forces of this world, even as Satan says, hey, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Help us not to listen to him. Help us to pursue Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to know that as we do that, the world may oppose us. That's okay because we have joy set before us, even as Christ did. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.